I'd like to start with a very short poem from Wu Min. It's one you may have heard me share before because it's one of those poems that always stays with me, comes back up again and again. 10,000 flowers in spring, the moon in autumn, cool breeze in summer, snow in winter. If your mind isn't clouded by unnecessary things, this is the best season of your life. That line, the best season of your life, oof, that's got a lot of challenge in our current world. Um, lots and lots up with the world, lots and lots up with um, ourselves personally, our families is related to all of this going on in the world and calling it the best season of your life. The poem sounds kind of um, idyllic when you compare it to global warming, California fires, East Coast hurricanes. So what it is pointing to is a radically different understanding of what the best season in our life is than our usual American way of assuming the best season is when everything is going just fine, when everyone in the family is healthy, strong, fit, in shape, uh, job is going well, all of those things. And the reality is, we may have moments of life that everything's all smooth sailing, but there's always a lot up and down. And even in really, really challenging times, I have to say this poem comes up to me as a solace, as a relief, as an invitation to radically differently understand myself in relationship to life the world, and everything around me. So I'm not sure why this is the example that first came up for me. Man, this is hard. It's really helpful to recognize times in our lives when we have been in challenging situations or conditions and been able to shift how we see it and the situation becomes something different. Uh, new possibilities open. Knowing where those situations are, knowing when we've been able to take something really challenging and understand the best season of our life in different terms, maybe terms of touching into the sacredness of life, um, touching into a flow state right in the challenge, any other way. Knowing where we have made that shift, that's really helpful for our sense of self-efficacy in managing challenges in our life. One example of that that came up for me that might seem a little odd at the moment, 
um, was something that happened for me at the Virginia International Motor Speedway a number of years ago. Uh, but it's relevant, and so I want to share it. I had taken my teenage daughter to a weekend um, teen driving solutions um, program to help teenagers become safer drivers. Uh, we needed that training. So the program was operated at the Virginia International Motor Speedway and run by a bunch of ex-NASCAR race drivers who ran it with a lot of testosterone and, and um, um, that kind of energy. And they believed that they needed not just to uh, work with the teens, they needed to work with the parents as well. So there were two tracks. My daughter was on her program for the two days and I was on my program for the two days. So at one point in the middle of this, I find myself on, on this big black tarmac, big black square, and in a, in a large, I don't remember exactly what the, the car was, but like a, some, some sort of large um, Ford Crown car or something like that, one of those big old police cars that they used to have. And the, the cars were beat up, had been there for a long time, old tanks that they actually used for CIA training. And they had set it up, they had watered it down, so it was really slick on the tarmac. These tar the tires on the car were, were slick already, um, worn out. And they put four cones up in the middle just to make a circle to go around. And they had one car on one side of the circle, the other car um, right across from it, with the idea that you would go as fast as you could around the circle, knowing that of course you would skid out with these conditions and manage the skid and try to catch up with the other car and whichever driver could read the license tag of the other car, get close enough to read the license tag. That was, that was when the, the challenge was done and the person won. So there I am behind the wheel of this town car with an ex-NASCAR driver sitting next to me and everything's all hyped up and you're gonna have to go and gun it and get there. And it's just like not my personality. So I kind of go into an unhelpful reactive mode of um, you try to push me and I'm not, and I'm going to stop. <laughs> I'm going to go. Uh, um, not one of my, my most skillful moments in life. So they say, go. And I'm like, okay. And I start putting around the circle. My NASCAR driver go woman, go, push that, push that gas, get going, do it. <laughs> the more he yells at me, the slower I go. And the mother in the other car probably got my license tag in about eight seconds. Shortest race of all. Uh, so after that, we everyone had their turn. They took us back to the classroom. And then they talked about how to protect yourself if your car goes into a skid. And they gave that intellectual instruction that I'm sure everyone has heard, and I can never remember which way do you turn. You turn into the skid, what the heck does that mean? They, they offered that. Didn't know what to do with that anymore than I ever have been able to make heads or tails of it. 
And then they said something very helpful that shifted the whole thing for me. They said, if you put a four-year-old kid in a go-kart, on a go-kart track, and, you, and tell the kid, you can go fast. Four-year-old kid will get behind the wheel of that go-kart and they will fly, they will go, and they will skid because they are going fast enough that they will naturally reach that limit and skid. And you never have to tell a four-year-old what to do in face of a skid. They know, they feel, they're, they're so still in tune with their bodies that their body becomes an extension, the go-kart the go becomes an extension of their body and they can feel automatically how to correct the skid and they just know what to do. They said that to me and I was like, oh, I know how to do this. I, <laughs> I practice mindfulness, go into body attunement, I can do this. They took us back to the, the flat top and this time big old car, but they'd taken all the wheels off and put on hard plastic wheels. So you drive with these hard plastic, no tread wheels. It's like driving on ice. You're just like, I mean, even the smallest little turn, you're already skidding this way and that way. Uh, and set up the circle again, this time with only one car at a time, because they knew people would be spinning out. Um, and, and I had my, my, NASCAR, my NASCAR race driver in the seat next to me, and he said, go. And I was like, fine set back down in that seat, let the, the car become an extension of my body, felt into it, found my breath, breathed in and out, and I went. It was fun. I could feel, if I let go of all the intellect and just went into the body, I could feel exactly what they meant about feeling how to manage the skid. And so I was going pretty darn fast in this control spin round and round and round in the circle. And I had my, my NASCAR race driver this time going, golden, 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 golden. That's all he said through the whole time. As soon as the car stopped, I got out. All the dads ran to me and they're like, oh my gosh, where'd you do your training? And of course, it went until the next day that I thought, on the meditation cushion is what I should have said. But that was all of those body scans letting me understand a different kind of attunement with my body uh, that, that is a sort of wisdom and knowledge utterly different from intellect. And when we have those moments, I mean, even though that's kind of like as far away as my sweet spot, which is deep in the woods <laughs> and quiet on a hike, I'm instead in like NASCAR race haven, um, that flow state of being with the car and it flowing around, that was beautiful. There was something really beautiful in, in that moment. And it was my practice absolutely that allowed me to take a challenging situation 
and shift it into something that had an ease where I never would have expected to be able to find it. So talking about skidding cars might seem like a little bit of an odd lead in to compassion, but there's a real similarity that is highly relevant. It was all of those body scans that allowed the attunement that opened up a different sort of ease in the moment behind that wheel. It is all of our compassion practice that opens up a different kind of attunement that allows an ease with our own being and with others around us. It is our compassion practice where we start to understand an attunement that brings a flow, an ease, a way of being in the best season of our life, even in remarkably hard conditions. Another tiny example, um, my daughter has said it's fine for me to, to say this, during those teen years, uh, we, we had some very fiery, fiery um, um, moments. And I can say absolutely, when I met those fiery moments with my reactivity, with my tension, with my intellect, um, saying she should, blah, 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 fill in the blank. Um, or I should, blah, 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 fill in the blank. I know those moments never felt good and never, ever, ever would have um, um, fit the best season of my life. When I could stand in that fire, my reactivity, believe me, just as much as hers. And, and the fire that ultimately I'm having to stand in is just mine. When I could stand in that fire and acknowledge the fear that would come up for me for someone that I loved, um, for the things, you know, the parent worry of what will happen if blah, blah, blah. You know, to stand in the fear, to stand in the anger, to stand in the reactivity, to, you know, all of those stories, and instead to find the connection of compassion underneath it. The deeper I was able to let go, open into that spacious world of compassion, the more those moments radically shifted and became openings and became knowing of the sacredness of life right in the middle of the fire and touching it. So when things are hard, we need these kind of practices that allow us to shift perspective and understand the best season of our life in radically different terms. One way to do that I want to offer is um, precept or vow practice. Uh, I'm doing a program right now that uh, involves working with six precepts. 
And that might sound kind of um, dull and very um, guilt-laden about not doing it perfect and right. But there's actually something quite freeing in it. That, uh, you know, these are the guidelines that give me the space to drop into a better way of being with life. So it, it brought up to mind for me how lovely this kind of practice can be. And I remembered um, a very simple version of it from Thich Nhat Hanh, uh, that he actually uh, wrote for children and tends to, and has uh, his, his organization, Sangha, has offered to children traditionally in lots and lots and lots of places. But there is a simple elegance to it that I think is universal. Um, doesn't need to be just for children in any way. So when I looked up online to see if I remembered the wording right, he calls it the two promises. I came up with a website where, where uh, they were, I think it was the Plum Village website, which is Thich Nhat Hanh's home in France, uh, where they were offering it to children and, and children were able to um, write back all of their comments um, on what, what it was like for them to practice with the two promises. The comments were beautiful. There's a lot of what you would just naturally expect. When I work with the two promises, I'm able to be a better brother to my little sister. Um, I'm able to help my mother more. You know, I mean, they're all, all of the, um, it makes me um, work better with others uh, in, a, in a way. But kind of like the four-year-old and the go-kart, there were, was this theme that showed up again and again and again in the comments where these children naturally understood that working with the primuses made their life feel better. That connection with offering compassion practice makes my day go better, my day go easier, makes, brings me more ease. That connection was plain as day. Often by the time we get to be adults and we've been so guilted and shamed in our life, we hear these kind of precepts or promise or vow practices, we hear it through the lens of guilt. We hear it through the lens of I should. And we forget that actually what's being offered is a promise to a better way of being. So there were lovely comments like one little boy. I practice the, the, the two promises because they will help me be with people more easily and make my life happier. Another little girl. I practice with the two promises because I want to be happy and peaceful. So I really invite you to explore a very short practice with me around these two promises. Noticing whatever comes up for you. When you hear the promises, does your mind naturally go into this guilt of, ah, I should be a better person? Or is there a way that you can hear an opening offered for a more peaceful, wiser, kinder, stronger way of being in the world. 
There's not a right or a wrong with that. We always start with wherever we are and work with that. And just know that these are um, not perfection practices, not about um, doing this perfectly, but rather about vowing to undertake a training, undertake a practice in learning how to open up a life in these ways. So I will make sure I have a written um, thing of the vows, if you like to read them, available. Finding whatever posture best supports your body. If you want, you can even close your eyes and just listen to these two promises. With a sense of curiosity, what comes up for you when you hear this? I vow to develop my understanding in order to live peacefully with people, animals, plants, and minerals. I vow to develop my compassion in order to protect the lives of people, animals, plants, and minerals. So I invite you to explore whatever thoughts, feelings, felt sense in your body comes up for you. When you hear these two promises. Read them again. And if you want, bring some curiosity to what happens when you offer these promises to yourself internally. I vow to develop my understanding in order to live peacefully with people, animals, plants, and minerals. I vow to develop my compassion in order to protect the lives of people, animals, plants, and minerals. When you hear these two promises, you include yourself. Is there some fallback habit that hears these two promises as being about how I should be in terms of every, everyone and everything else, but exclude me? Or is there a way you hear in the promises, a vow, a promise? to develop understanding and compassion for you as well. If there is a place of difficulty with the promises, really give room to acknowledge, be curious, explore. What's that about? If there's a place of some natural responsiveness, Notice that. Maybe a particular person or group of people or something to do with animals, plants, minerals came up for you. Pay attention to any opening. What does that feel like in your body?
So a practice that has been rich for me is saying these two vows first thing in the morning. I have a little um, card with them written on um, by my bedstand. And, um, and actually, I guess I don't really need the card anymore, but uh, say them to myself. It's a nice way for me to start the day with some release is the effect it has for me. If that's a practice that you would like to explore for yourself, maybe take this week to see what happens when you bring these vows into your life in some way. So I want to finish with um, a few short lines from Rilke. You have not grown old, and it is not too late to dive into your increasing depths where life calmly gives out its own secret. That's what the best season in our life is pointing to. Life calmly giving out its own secret. How do you open to that for you? Thank you.